Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today Erica Christie and I will be discussing Young Sherlock Holmes from 1985. We'll go into talking about the cast, the background, the special effects, the novelization, and of course, the soundtrack by Bruce Broughton. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Welcome to Soundtrack Alley. Erica, it's good to have you here. How have you been? And when was your first encounter with young Sherlock Holmes? I've been good. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I know that I saw this movie on TV at some point in the late 80s, early 90s. I didn't have very like distinct memories of it until I rewatched it recently. And there were definitely a few scenes that I remembered, but as a whole, I just didn't really remember it very well. So it was kind of nice to sit down and kind of rewatch the whole thing and have these little moments of, oh, I remember this. And I just didn't know that that was young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Um, I found that like the actor Alan Cox, um, who played John Watson, went through like a growth spurt during filming and so in later scenes in the film he's seen shot more frequently at a slight distance or seated because um his the actors around him were on were standing on risers because he had grown since the earlier scenes and like to go back on uh things for me the movie i saw it back when i was in sixth grade and um, I was just going into junior high and it was just one of those movies that really stood out to me. And it always stood out to me with the mystery that was at the very beginning with the opening credit sequence, uh, that there's this shadow moving around and it's kind of an homage to the opening credit sequence of like classic Sherlock Holmes uh, programs of the film series that involved like Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and I thought that was kind of cool it was a neat nod to those uh, very specific um, movie franchises that existed in black and white now um, Nigel Stock it was interesting that he who played Wax Flatter he was actually Watson in Sherlock Holmes in 1964, which is pretty cool. What do you think about that? That's a small world for the Sherlock Holmes actors, uh, especially if you were British in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they all kind of rotated around <laughs> a little bit. So yeah, that's not surprising at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and then this was the first appearance of Nigel Stock. Lockwood West and Brian Olton 
and even Willoughby Goddard. Um, are you familiar with any of those actors? Uh, I probably recognize their faces, but their names are not super familiar to me now. Yeah, there was only there was only a handful of people that I actually recognized for this movie. The first was, of course, the actor that played Sherlock Holmes, and then there was the um, uh, Chester Cragwitch. Uh, he was really familiar because I'd seen him. I mean, the character but the the actor that played that character you know uh he was very familiar to me because i'd seen him in other stuff and i was like hey i know that guy so uh he was pretty cool um and then i thought it was interesting that henry winkler was a full-time producer for this film that chris columbus chris columbus directed and we have Steven Spielberg be a executive producer, which is kind of cool. Um, and then uh, the older Dr. Watson, who's doing the narration, which was by Michael Hordern. He also played Gandalf in the BBC radio production of Lord of the Rings. And then Nicholas Rowe, that's the other actor. Uh, he played Holmes once again. And he was briefly Holmes in 2015, which was um, in the the movie Mr. Holmes that was with uh, Ian, oh, what is it? Ian McKellen. That's McKellen. what it was. Yeah. Did you see that movie? I literally saw it a week ago. So, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just, just saw the movie, yeah. That is such a good movie. It, it's just, it's it's really unique and... I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then Brian Olton replaced Maurice Denham in the role of Master Snellgrove. Um, he must have been one of those really, really old guys. <laughs> no offense to them, but yeah. Um, and then, let's see, Rath's name, uh, which is an in-joke to the actor Basil Rathbone, who played Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Anthony Higgins had recently appeared in another Steven Spielberg production, being Raiders of the Lost Ark, and had also recently starred in another period costume picture, which was with um, Peter Greenway, uh, which was the Drotsman's contract back in 1982. And when Alan Arnold consulted five different books before writing the film's novelization, they said that they guided him through Cairo's antiquity and across its desert sands. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, okay, so what, what relation did Alan Cox have um, to another movie that uh, a relative of his had? Um, it was the uh, the appearance of the strange case of Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, what was what was the actor's name that this person was related to? Uh, that would be his father, his father Brian Cox, who yeah. is literally one of my favorite actors ever. And I yeah. must know that Alan Cox was his son. 
And when I realized that uh, watching the movie, I can see Brian in all of Alan's uh, like gestures. So yeah, that was kind of funny to find out because I absolutely adore Brian Cox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's a really good actor. Um, and okay, so then with um, with Holmes uh, being uh, called. Mr. Holmes foreshadowed Nicholas Rowe's cameo in Mr. Holmes as the retired um, uh, Sherlock Holmes. And then Sherlock Holmes and Eddie Valiant, um, which is kind of ironic, but uh, they were both in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They're like, they, they're comparable, I guess. Not, not that, uh, uh, Nicholas Rowe was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but those characters, Sherlock Holmes and Eddie Valiant from Who Framed Roger Rabbit are detectives using like magnifying glasses and are both also Steven Spielberg productions. So we get a lot of Steven Spielberg uh, connections for this film. Mm-hmm. So, And part of that is because he just has so many movies, so it's a lot easier to make connections when he's so prolific. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let's see. The phrase that Rupert Waxflatter whispers to Sherlock Holmes when he dies is etar. And it's just kind of a unique uh, phrase, but it gets brought up through the movie several times. And they really try to drill that into you that it's very significant for this, like, cult that is going on with the Egyptians and everything and I thought that was just kind of a neat neat nod um and I I really liked that the beginning they really wanted to focus and say that this was inspired by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh Sherlock Holmes stories like it wasn't specifically based on the exploits of him but it's original and that's what I really liked about it as well. And then um, I even liked the epilogue that it stated, although Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did not write about the very youthful years of Sherlock Holmes and did establish the initial meeting between Holmes and Dr. Watson as adults, this affectionate speculation about what might have been happened and has been made with respectful admiration and in tribute to the author and his endearing works. And I thought that was just really cool uh, to even give the evidence of this is, you know, in very high respect to the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mysteries of Sherlock Holmes. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, it's just kind of a little nod to him, wouldn't it be fun if they had met as teenagers type of thing? Um, I mean, it's certainly, I can definitely understand how, you know, purists wouldn't really get because if they had met as teenagers, that would very much change how they react to each other as adults. Um, and Sherlock is very cold and cut off. Um, and if, Watson had been there if this story had been true and Watson had been there when he was a young man and saw how emotional he was and and Watson's the only one who knows that he's in love with this person that gets killed seeing him all the time would be bringing up and wishing him so it would change who they were as adults 
So I, I can understand why people don't like it, but as a, just a kind of a fantasy, oh, wouldn't it be fun with these two characters in this different place and sort of see what happens? So as far as that respect goes, yeah, it's certainly a fun little story. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, this is one of the first feature films to have a completely CGI character uh, with the glass stained glass window night. Um, this was one of my favorite scenes in the movie, um, how that night just kind of j- like jumped out and was heading toward the, the priest there. And Industrial Light and Magic um, animated that scene, and it was overseen by John Lasseter, who, of course, was, it was a er- very early film credit uh, for Pixar. So I thought that was kind of interesting to make that connection too. And uh, also that it took them four months to actually create the um, uh, image or the whole scene with um, the stained glass window night. So I thought that was cool. I I really like that scene. I'm actually surprised it only took four months. I would not have been surprised if it had been eight or ten or something longer. Um, so yeah, Pixar and IOM have been at the forefront of uh, graphics since, as you can see, since the mid-80s. They were doing stuff, the people that were in those companies were doing stuff by the mid-70s on. So we were talking about the amazing scene with the stained glass night um and amazingly that it only took four months to create that whole scene um and then also when young sherlock holmes and watson first meet holmes incorrectly guesses that watson's first initial stands for james and this is a reference to one of the contradictions uh, in Arthur Conan Doyle stories uh, because his first name's John, Um, but his wife calls him James, um, and Watson's middle initial is H, which Doyle never expanded on, and so it was fan speculation that uh, improved it with, like, that it stood for Hamish. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. (laughs) Um, Also, the fact that the fake snow that they used um, killed some of the grass in Oxford. And so Steven Spielberg reimbursed the whole uh, university for the cost of the replacement of the grass. I found that funny. Yeah, I mean, the film crew would have had insurance for that sort of thing, but, I mean, being Steven Spielberg, obviously, I think most of us know he's a pretty nice guy. Uh, just handling that and not going through, like, a pain of insurance, it was probably just simpler for them to do that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we know how prolific he is, and you don't want to burn your bridges. So if it gets around that they ruined scenery somewhere, in this case, grass, that they ruined something and didn't fix it, um, that would make it harder for him to move forward. So I think part oh, of it... Yeah. He's just a nice guy, and part of it is he's a professional doing a really good job, and, you know, he wants to keep everybody happy. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, the dog in the film, Uncas, 
is named after a portion of the brain that's associated with seizures. And the seizures that develop from the uncus are preceded by hallucinations, which are a major cause of death in the film. Now, do you think that was a coincidence? I think that was the filmmakers having a little bit of a joke. (laughs) I, I think so, too. And they also, like Chris Columbus, he was concerned whether the movie would upset Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle purists, but that never was the case. Everyone actually really liked it and thought it was a unique uh, take on the character. At least, that's what I've read. And the film was also... I didn't know this before. The film was retitled after its American release in the territories and on home video as Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear. It was almost like it would be a take on what young Indiana Jones would be, you know? It's like, oh, this is uh, an idea of what the young Indiana Jones or young Sherlock Holmes would be like, rather than with, uh, you know, like Indiana Jones. So I thought that was kind of fun too. So it was almost like they were so, trying to make it a pulp story because you know Indiana Jones and the uh, Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Sherlock Holmes and the what is it, Lost the Pyramid of Fear? Like it was kind of it's like they set it up that they were going to make a whole bunch more movies and just never quite got around to it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it exactly. seems like with that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that the fact. Um, Chris Columbus had said in an interview that the thing that was most important to me was why Holmes became so cold and calculating and why he was alone the rest of his life. And it was because of that that uh, intense uh, emotion-driven scenes that he had with the loss of his love in this film. And I thought that was a, a really interesting way of looking at it because it's like yeah maybe he felt that he had to shut off his emotions at some point in his young life to become so um unobstructed by other people's thoughts i don't know (laughs) i'm speculating there so uh, the movie's closing credits. Uh, I just meant, I we talked about that. Um, after having a great working relationship with Steven Spielberg on Gremlins, Spielberg produced the next two films that Chris Columbus has ske- had scripted, such as The Goonies and then, of course, The Young Sherlock Holmes. And let's see... Oh, the pictures that contained a number of the Dixian-type character names in the tradition of Charles Dickens, and it included names such as Mrs. Dribb, Rupert T. Waxflatter, um, Chester Cragwich, Bentley Bobster, and the Reverend Duncan Nesmith. Um, And the movie also features that curio shop 
like the old curiosity shop which was a name of a novel that charles dickens had now i really like those unique little intrinsic facts about that um what I wondered is, what are your thoughts toward the different hallucinations that actually happened in the movie? Um, I think they did a good job of keeping the hallucinations based on reality. Um, like the one character was standing in front of the fireplace, and then he kind of flashed back to you know a, a city burning, and then he flashed to like him burning. So like everything that we saw kind of you know connected together. Or with uh, Elizabeth's, uh, was it father? Black Squatter's father, mm-hmm. um, like he was in that little shop he was in and saw those little bat-like creatures with the red eyes, and then suddenly he saw those flying around. Um, so when you're hallucinating, especially with, you know, whatever it was that they were uh, spiked with <laughs> um, in this case, I thought they did a good job of keeping those hallucinations like right there in the room. So whatever you saw is kind of, you know, where your mind was wandering. Uh, when the three teenagers were in the graveyard and they were imagining skeletons and all this scary stuff happening around them, that's the sort of thing you would see in a graveyard if you were hallucinating. So I appreciated that they didn't just make things up, but they really kept everything based on reality and what was right in front of the person. That actually kind of made the hallucination scarier because what they were seeing was actually there. It's just their mind was kind of running away with it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, And I really like how there's, like, so many mentions to even, like, Egyptian mythology, and, like, they refer to, like, the Book of Ra or the name of the Egyptian god, uh, which is Rametep. And they... (laughs) They had that that giant set, and that was a pretty impressive set for in that pyramid area, and they had that giant, like, bowl head and everything, and, I mean, it was just really impressive. And then what it reminds me of is that whole, um, <laughs> that whole piece of music that's playing in the background is, um... Oh, man, I just learned about this on another show, and it's like, uh, uh, De de Res Irae, or, oh, man, I can't think of it, but it's like a four, four four-piece note of, like, representing death, and it's like, it's in very specific tones, like dun 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 dun, or something like that. And it reminded me of that. But it that piece of music was also part of a classical piece of music that was from a long time ago, and I can't remember, you know, where exactly that was and when that was. So, you know. <laughs> It's just uh, one of those things that it recalled things to my mind that that was actually existing. Um, And then I thought it was interesting also that Holmes spoke of Mycroft um, at the end, or, well, kind of in the middle, because he was talking about um, having to stay with Mycroft in... um, because after he had been expelled. But it was also mentioned in the novelization of the book that I, I've never seen anywhere. 
<laughs> like I don't know where to find it. That would be that would be an interesting find to uh, read and look into because I imagine that there's probably oh well um, here here's a a neat fact about that. Uh, if the novelization foreshadowed Chris Columbus's association with the Harry Potter series, um, Watson resembling Harry Potter. School experiments, Dudley's rivalry with Holmes is like Harry's with Draco Malfoy, and um, Dudley and Malfoy both come from rich parents, cavernous libraries, suites, just like similarities that they used uh, for those type of novels. And then Holmes reads from Hunter's Encyclopedia of Disease, and the reference work isn't available to the general public, but it was in libraries of medical schools and practicing physicians. So do you think the actual library that they were in was more for those that were going into like an intellectual field, like uh, a doctor or a lawyer or um, physicians of that nature? Do you think? Uh, I don't think they ever said specifically in the story, um, but English boarding schools have been around for centuries, if not a thousand years. I mean, they've been they've had them going for many, many years, which is part of the reason why, you know, Hogwarts, where Harry went and this boarding school here have so many similarities. It's just a similarity in English boarding schools. Um, this school in particular, it definitely seemed like it had more kids that either had a lot of money or were, you know, very good uh, either at school or some other, you know, intellectual pursuit. So I wouldn't be surprised um, if this was you know, kind of, you know, a higher school that, you know, only the elite might have sent their kids to. Um, again, we didn't get much of a background of a lot of the kids, uh, but it, it sort of seemed like, you know, where it was in the city, the way the kids were dressed, how nice everything was, that it probably was at least a little bit more on the elite side uh, than some of the other boarding schools were. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, even when we look into, like, Watson, and he wanted to become a doctor, and he didn't consider himself, like, in the film, to be a talented writer, but he attributed his success to, like, public fascination with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, in the original novels, but like in this, Holmes refers to Watson as his biographer or zealous historian. <laughs> I thought that was neat. And Watson saw himself as an amateur while Holmes is a gifted amateur. <laughs> and I just, I like those little neat points in it. And I'm like halfway through the entire collection of Sherlock Holmes, uh, and I just finished The Hound of the Baskervilles, and that was just a brilliant story, but it, it takes some time to really get through all those stories, so I just, you know, I think about that, too. Um, have, have you read those very much, or? Uh, yeah, I've read all of them. I mean, I, I've never read them all the way straight through, but I have read everything. Um, and I'm also a big fan of Sherlock, the TV show. Uh, so a few of the stories that I haven't read in a while, something like, you know, The Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, I've had a copy of it since I was probably 15, which I've read numerous times. But since I've seen the show so much more recently, 
And the show episode, of course, is called The Hounds of Baskerville. So they changed it just slightly. But I can remember that storyline a little bit better than the original storyline. Uh, so so yeah. sometimes I kind of have to stop and think, oh, wait, was that the TV version or was that the book version? Because uh, I've seen a TV mm-hmm. version much more often. Um, but, yeah, I've been through all of this stuff, and I've always been a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I, I agree. And... You know, even when we look into like Watson and he wanted to become a doctor and he didn't consider himself like in the film to be a talented writer, but he attributed his success to like public fascination with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, in the original novels, but like in this, Holmes refers to Watson as his biographer or zealous historian (laughs) i thought that was neat and watson saw himself as an amateur while holmes is a gifted amateur (laughs) and i just i like those little neat points in it and i'm like halfway through the entire collection of sherlock holmes uh and i just finished the hound of the baskervilles and that was just a brilliant story but it it takes some time to really get through all those stories. So I just, you know, I think about that too. Um, have, have you read those very much? Or? They've actually been doing Sherlock Holmes adaptions for uh, almost 120 years. Sherlock Holmes was one of the very first movies that they did, silent films, in the 1890s. So he's actually, oh, wow. that the character of Sherlock Holmes has been on screen more than any other character ever in the history of 140-something years of movies. So they, they've actually been doing Sherlock Holmes since before they had talking films. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, so another thing I really like is how they they had changed like the name of um, the the villain like he wasn't his oh man uh, where is that uh, it's in my notes the villain in the movie uh, he's known by another name uh, man is it it's Wraith right. Uh, I think it's pronounced Raft. Yeah, R-A-T-H. That's that's Raft. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, with that information, like, he changes his name at the end to be Moriarty. And it's kind of a play on words of his own name. It it was almost like he he changed it to, to be that, so that way no one would recognize him anymore, and people thought he had died. So, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, they said, I that they was said cool. in the movie why he came up with Wrath. Do you remember why he came up with that name? I don't remember. It's been a little while since I've watched it, so. Atar. Oh, that's right. Atar backwards. R-A-T-H-E-E-H-T-A-R. Atar, that, and that, yeah. that's because that's in the film. That's the fake name that he gave when he was a teacher was wrath r-a-t-h-e atar just in okay yep yeah there we go that's that's really good okay so i i found the information regarding who the author was for the novelization it was alan arnold um it i just hadn't made that connection in the past you know before and i thought that was a really good point that 
he had gone on to so many of the uh, ideas. He said in his acknowledgments that although there were so many so-called Sherlock Holmes passages, no one can make the attempt without devoting study to uh, Conan Doyle's stories. And in doing so, one gains a respect for them and their creator, which is quite profound. I thought that was really cool because he wanted to really be um, honorific of the Conan Doyle mysteries and make it better. So I, I really like that. And I also find that in the movie you get uh, a lot of action, but you get also a lot of mystery to things that are happening, like the presence of Cragwitch at the funeral and even him coming to uh, Wax Flatter's uh, laboratory and so many different things with that. It just, it really shows you like they were trying to progress the mystery, but also give you clues as to later things that might actually happen, like, you know, with foreshadowing and stuff. And I just, I, I really enjoyed that. What did you enjoy most about the movie? I would say I enjoyed most uh, just how much fun they had as teenagers. Uh, both kind of seeing Sherlock, you know, we're kind of used to seeing him cold and distant. Both kind of seeing him run around and have fun. Um, but really just like all the teenagers that were in the story. Um, like they didn't do a lot of like super cliche characters. I mean, his, you know, nemesis Dudley was a, a tiny bit cliche, but really outside of that, there wasn't a lot of cliche stuff. It was just, and I also liked that the students all had such reverence for Sherlock. Um, and rather him being cold and distant, he actually embraced all of that. And he was nice to everybody and he was helping his friends and he kind of enjoyed being a rock star just a little bit. So I was, mm -hmm. that was probably my favorite part of it. <laughs> yeah. And seeing all the the kids at the school and they were all cheering and they were like, Yay! you know, when he was trying to find the the trophy and everything. And <laughs> I just I like the fact that they even threw in a few lines that I don't know if it if it's so much in the books as what people may think, like the game is afoot. Um I don't think Sherlock said that very often. Uh, Watson may have referred to it a couple times in the novels, but I don't think it was a major part of him having that there. Do you remember any of that? or He said most of those lines at one point in time or another, uh, but yeah, he definitely didn't do them as much as movies portray him. Um, but, you know, people yeah. for so many decades want to go to Sherlock Holmes movies and see him with the pipe and the deer stopper. He's never described ever holding a pipe or a deer stopper, but since the movie yeah. put him in that way, people sort of want that when they go to them. So yeah, a little bit of it is kind of embellishing, but I know that he said at least a few of those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing is, is that they never in the novels actually tell you if Watson is uh, larger or thinner. Um, they just, you know, mention that he's a doctor. They never give his actual weight, nor, I mean, with Sherlock, he's always thin. 
Like Sherlock was always a thin man as he's been portrayed. As he's all thin, he's got a very, very specific no shape described in the book. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it is, but Doyle goes into very explicit detail as to what shape Sherlock's nose is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense. I mean, that's that's pretty good. Well, why don't we get into some of the soundtrack stuff um, that we have for this episode? Uh, I really like Bruce Broughton's score. Um, there's so many like things about it that, that really highlight um, how he did certain things. And I recently listened to um, some film music regarding his Western take on some things. I thought that was kind of cool. Like he did a Western. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Um, I remember the music and yet I can't remember the name of the movie. (laughs) Uh, That happens to me all the time though. Um, But I really like that even in the first track of the, the score that you see in the movie with the first victim, even um, it underscores like the opening, the shocking nightmare scene, and it just it it shows like those scary moments that maybe would reflect upon say a John Williams score. And I could feel that throughout this score fairly well, you know. You get a lot of these sweeping moments and you get like your hero theme of Sherlock and and Bruce Broughton really seemed to bring that out really, really well. And I, I really uh, enjoyed even with like Watson's arrival and how um, it kind of sweeps you into it and gives you this calm uh, piece of music that uh, really shows Watson's character. And and then it, it, it switches later on when you get... Um, the action of some of the scenes with like the glass soldier or even solving the crime and you get these uh, action pieces that are like really intense but I, I I really found Bruce Rotten to be a good fit for this score and so I, I figured today we could play a few of these cues on the show um, first I'll play the first victim and then main title and Library Love and Wax Flatters first. Now, I really like how this movie opens that I mentioned before with the mystery right away, and the music really reflects that and highlights it so much. And then we get like that love theme with Elizabeth and Sherlock. What are your thoughts, Erica? Uh, yeah, for that first track, especially, I wrote down Mysterious and Brooding. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind <laughs> and as we've been saying Sherlock Holmes stories are mysteries so I think just right off the bat um, Broughton did a great job of really kind of putting you into that mindset not that you wouldn't go into a Sherlock Holmes film already thinking that but he just really sets the scene for that um, uh, and then for the next track the main title um, I really like that we got uh, that same mysterious and brooding elements but our heroes are teenagers, so we've got fun. There's some little silly, you know, musical passages that sort of get repeated and passed back and forth. Um, and I thought that was a really good way of showing that they're kids. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't serious. I mean, people are literally dying in the movie, so it's not that it isn't serious, 
but it's a little bit more lighthearted, and you kind of get that they're young and they're inexperienced, but they're out to help people. And so that kind of balancing that mysterious brooding and them being kids trying to help, um, the back and forth that he does in these first four tracks, I thought he did a pretty good job with that. Yeah, I agree. So now we'll play those cues.
So next, what I'd like to play is the glass soldier solving the crime, uh, getting the point, and Rametep. Uh, these really show like Bruce's ability to weave the action, mystery, and thrilling music with like a suspense that goes through the score. Um, Erica, what do you think of how he how he does that? Um, I think he does a really great job uh, of everything you just said. <laughs> um, for these two <laughs> tracks, I'll go specifically for Solving a Crime, which is the second one. Um, I like when that track comes in is when Sherlock is kind of doing his big official uh, looking for clues. Uh, it's the game where he's looking for the trophy. And, and it's that repeated phrase that every time throughout the movie where he's quote-unquote looking for clues, we get that same repeated phrase. And so I kind of like how that started in. And so, you know, every time you hear that, Sherlock is going to start looking for clues. And that's kind of why we like Sherlock is he's always looking for clues. Yeah. Um, so that part was good. And then I really like the last track as well, the Rame Tep, um, the, the, which uh, has the big choir in it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they kind of, they have a really good acceleration in that song. Uh, like it starts kind of quiet and slow. And then it speeds up, and then it slows down, and then it speeds up again. So they did a really good job of kind of, you know, with the mystery, that kind of amping up the tension, and they kind of let it down, they amp it up again. And uh, throughout most of the piece, the voices work really well with the music up until the end. Oh, yeah. And once it gets to the end, the voices actually get almost shouty. And at that point, the mm-hmm. voices, they almost turn more into instruments than voices and I really liked how you could kind of tell everything is falling apart and the fact that those voices just you know kind of again just shouty is really the best word for it uh, just really, yeah. just really adding that tension and it's you know kind of showing that you know everything's about to fall apart yeah it was almost like chaotic um in their element of 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 the of the music so um so let's go ahead and play those
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme. Um, lastly today, I'll play It's You, Etars, Escape, Duel and Final Farewell, Riddle Solved, and End Credits, uh, <laughs> Trait Rom, which is of course spelled backwards to be Moriarty. Uh, and I really love how Bruce Broughton brings up the final part of the score by imping up that action, but also keeping the suspense and even creating this beautiful emotional piece of music to really envelop our hearts in the characters. Now, what do you think of that, Erica? Uh, yeah, especially with the if you, it comes in, it uh, starts out with a harp, and then you kind of hear the harp in and out. Um, and I think, like as you are saying, he does a really good job when he uses certain uh, musical instruments and certain motifs to represent the characters. Um, so him coming with that harp like really changes up a lot of the sounds that we had been hearing prior to that. Um, so I thought he did a great job with that. 
Um, I also like the duel and final farewell. Um, the opening passages in that are kind of awkward. They're very dark. They're very dissonant. And it's almost like the instruments are fighting with each other. And that's, of course, mm-hmm. the famous section where John and Sherlock are chasing who we later find out is Moriarty, but they're chasing him through the streets. So you're getting this big, huge chase scene. Tension is getting higher and higher. And you can feel throughout the entire track that we're about to have a confrontation between good and evil. Um, and musically, I think he foreshadows that that's going to happen even before all of us realize on the screen that that's actually about to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like that. Um so today, it was really great to get your input on this, and I, I love the points that you brought out today. Where can people find you? Uh, yes, the best place to find me would be at my website, which is com. That's E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E.com. And there you can find uh, some of my videos, Instagram, YouTube, and all that other fun stuff. All right. And so you can find me on soundtrackalley.net. Podbean, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, which is iTunes, Google Play, and I'm at RandallAndrews1 on Twitter. And then also, don't forget, if you have suggestions or insights or say, hey, I really like your show, email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. And so, until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.